Porch friends, how we doing? It is awesome to be here. My name's Todd. I get to hang out here at Watermark and drop in on the porch every now and then. It is awesome to be with you and all our friends that are dropping in online and they're hanging out in some other places. We are glad you're here. I know that um, we just finished this fantasy series about relationships, right? And so what I want to do is tie in a little bit to that series. We talked about the fantasy guy, the fantasy girl, the fantasy relationship, all that different stuff. I'm going to talk to you about something that I think will drive you into this weekend, which is one of my favorite weekends of the year, uh, just with a real heart of gratitude. I love this weekend because there's just not a lot you have to do, right, to get ready for it, other than maybe find some folks to hang out with and find some food to take in. There's no shopping, no hustling, no getting around. But there is honestly something about um, holiday seasons that kind of can make it hard for some of us because we're like, man, I just, I just want to share my life, and especially my holidays, this time when family gets together. Some of you may not feel like you've got family that are close. And you certainly, you know, in our porch community at this stage of life, often don't have somebody that's kind of slid a ring on her finger and said, you, I'm choosing you. That fantasy idea. I can remember. It wasn't that long ago for me. I, 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 uh, I can remember there were only really a couple of times a year, maybe four times a year that were hard for me to be single. One of them was, um, was spring, Right? When uh, the azaleas were blooming and uh, the birds were chirping, the weather was nice, everybody kind of crawls out of their cave, then hibernating, and you see all the couples at the park having a great time together and, and riding bikes and exercising together. Spring was hard. The other time I can remember, summer. Summer was hard, right? Because everybody goes to the lake, they get to go to the 4th of July party and lay a blanket out and lay next to somebody and watch fireworks and go, this reminds me of my heart right there, just explosions in the sky. <laughs> and yeah, I think uh, the fall, fall was hard. All right, fall was tough, you know, sweater weather, where I was from, it got kind of cool. I was really skinny, so I could wear like four layers of clothing and look like a man, and it was just awesome, you know? <laughs> and we could go out there together, we could hang out, we could be together and just kind of, you know, snuggle by a little fire. Winter, winter was hard. Right, because it's Christmas, right? I mean, all the Hallmark movies were on. And you're like, oh, is there ever going to be, like I could be in like, you know, and that not a movie, but like me and Christmas gifts and under the tree and mistletoe. And like, so really, other than those four times a year, it was easy being single for me. But, um, but you know, I mean, we all have this fantasy because we have this idea, right? We have this idea that if we just got in a relationship, it'd just be awesome. And really, honestly, the, 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 the mindset of what that relationship would be like, Right? Specifically, the pursuit. Isn't that what you really want? I mean, relationships, we all know relationships are hard. But man, you know, when people are pursuing you and it's fresh and it's new, you know, and, uh, and, and they're just consumed with the thought of being with you. What I want to talk to you about tonight is the fantasy pursuit. Because girls, I mean, I know... You know, just our world sells this dream that, that I don't care if a dragon has locked you up in a castle, Fiona. There, there is there's this guy, and he's not an ogre. I mean, he's a stud, and he's coming after you, and he's going to rescue you from the dragon and the castle and loneliness, and he'll go through hell to come to you. I mean, that's kind of in kind of every little girl's fantasy. Every guy wants to be pursued in the way that Fiona dreams about this gallant stud that she would respect and long to give herself to and share herself with. I mean, the fantasy pursuit, right? It's out there and it's a bit embedded in all of us because all of us, let's be honest, are just a little insecure, maybe a lot. And we're all kind of thinking, man, am I really worth loving? Am I really worth pursuing? <laughs> if alarms would go off that I've been lost and somebody wants to find me. <laughs> Tragically, I mean, you know, listen, honestly, there's a, that means there's an amber alert. How kind of ironic that that just happened. Now, we said, man, when a kid is lost, separated from those who, who want to provide and care for them, we let the whole world know, and we want to come after you. Don't you really have that fantasy? I mean, I, I, I still do. Look, I've been married for almost 30 years, and I want my wife to pursue me 
Not just go, yeah, I'm your wife. Of course, we sleep together. No, I want my wife to want and long for me. I want it to be, you know, I, I've always said, and in fact, a guy named Martin Luther lived a long time ago said this, a man should love his wife in such a way that she hates to see him leave, and a, and a woman should love um, her husband in such a way that he knows she can't wait till he gets home. What he's describing there is that we all, even when we're married, right, that, uh, that we want to be pursued, not just tolerated. And there's this idea of just being pursued in general that is innate to who we are. And all of us are kind of like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I'll ever, ever find somebody who really wants to run after me, who chooses me. I started thinking about this, um, you know, this week a little bit. I think about all the love songs that are out there, right? I mean, you know, in the 80s, Randy Travis, my love is deeper than the holler, man, right? And just all these songs that talk about this love, you know, Blake Shelton, you'll be my honeybee, you know, I'm there this to my that, and we're going to be this to that, right? And I'll just do whatever I've got to get to you. I started thinking about um, great classic movie scenes. Y'all fans of The Last of the Mohicans? Oh, man, come on. Right? Do you remember this scene right here of Hawkeye and Korra? It is when um, they're hanging out right then. They, they, he's fallen in love with her. She has given his heart to him. And they're being chased, right, by the, by the, by the whole British army. And, um, and, and they're at this place where they're kind of in a cave behind a waterfall. And, 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 and they're kind of unable to protect themselves anymore. And Hawkeye is just sitting there, and he's just looking at Cora, and he knows he's got to make a decision. He knows if he stays there, they're going to kill him in front of her, which will break her heart. He can't defend them in any way. And so he just grabs her, and he looks at her, and he goes, stay alive! You hear me? You serve! You survive! You stay alive! I will find you! No matter how long it takes, no matter how far, I will find you! And then he just runs through this wall of water and just dives into the darkness, right? It's like, man, what a stud, you know? And if you're core, you're like, oh. And we just, I'm, I'm just telling you, that's one of those things. It's this fantasy moment. I'm like, I want to be Hawkeye. I think I could, I'd want to be Cora if Hawkeye would say that to me. I mean, who doesn't want to be loved like that? I started to look out there, and um, I came across a story just about, about great love stories, right? Here's one. I'm just going to, just, just for a little bit more, just sit on the stage here, okay? And, then, and there's this, um, this girl, Jessica Sharman is her name. Here's a picture, picture of Jessica and her, at the time, fiancé when they were in love. But Jessica, her whole life had had epileptic seizures. She, she really never suffered much from the seizures um, other than just the actual seizure itself. But, but one time they were out on a, like a date and they were on a train. And when they got off the train, her eyes rolled back in her head and all her limbs went limp. And, uh, and, and Richard just kind of took her and, and he, you know, immediately dialed her parents and said, what do I do, what do I do? And they just go, hey, do this, to calm down, we'll call 911 and if she doesn't come out of it quickly. And, and he did. And the parents kind of raced there, wasn't far from their home and they got there. And Jessica didn't recognize her parents, certainly didn't recognize Richard. Jessica didn't even recognize pictures of herself. And she had what a neurologist said was a seizure-induced amnesia, which is very, very rare. And so she forgot her whole family and certainly forgot Richard. But Richard pursued her, man. Richard wooed her again. I mean, the parents invited Richard over when she started to get well, and she said, I was scared to death when they left me alone with him. She said, I, 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 you know, he starts to take her out to places and say, hey, we used to do this together. And he just won her heart. She said, I don't remember the first time I fell in love with Richard, but I remember the second time. Now you're like, dude, that's a movie. That's The Vow, right? That's what you're saying. That's Rachel McAdams, right? That's Chandler Tatum, right? That's who that is, Channing Tatum, right? No, actually, that's a different deal. That was a true story. There's a couple came called Kim and Cricket Carpenter that that was their story. They wrote it into a book that they made into a movie. But I'm like, either way, Right? I'm like, I want to be pursued like that. I want a guy who will fall in love and I'll forget him and he'll pursue me again. Because his vow is that he's going to love me. Uh, here, here's a really sweet one. True story. This is a dad. He ran a fruit stand in, in Sichuan, uh, China. One day he turned around his fruit stand. His little daughter was three years old. And in the crowd, she was swept up. He panicked. He could not find his three-year-old. 
There's no details really whether she was abducted or just what happened, but he just panicked. And in the chaos and the crowd that was in that marketplace, he lost his three-year-old for 24 years. He looked for her. Never could find her. Eventually quit his job selling fruit and just drove a taxi so that everybody who got in his taxi, he could give them a card. So this is my daughter. She was three. I lost her. I don't know what relationships you have. Would you just tell somebody if they've ever adopted a daughter or did this, that they would find her? He, he, um, over 17,000 different contacts were made. He, he drove with signs all around his taxi of his daughter and this. After 24 years, a woman heard this. And she went and she wrote him and said, I think I might be your daughter. Got a DNA test. It was his daughter. He found her. 24 years. Amazing story. Before Amber Alerts of a loving father seeking a daughter. Last one. This one's kind of tragic. This is a gal. Okay. Um, you know, and her name uh, is, I'll look it up. It's I San Diego. And that's her cat, Diego. Look how happy she is. But she was fortunate enough to lose her cat. And she looked for her cat for two years, and then she found her. Look how upset she is when she finds her cat. She's bawling, right? That's a tragic story. It's a tragic story. The girl thought she finally lost her cat, and Dagnum Cat found his way home. That one, that one grabs me. Look, all right, we all, we all just had this fantasy pursuit that somebody would care for me. Well, I'm going to just tell you a story. I'm not going to, you know, this one, this is one of those messages, guys, that I just, um, I can't pray enough that you'll believe it's true. Because I, I don't know if part of your story is that there's ever going to be um, another individual that pursues you. I just don't know. I really don't. But I want to tell you something. I know that if somebody pursues you and you haven't understood the love I'm about to be talking about and the radical pursuit that's here, it won't matter because you're going to mess it up. And until you know how radically loved you are and how radically valuable you are, all that's going to happen with people that pursue you is in your neediness and in the imperfection of one human to love another human, you're going you're gonna to mess that relationship up and you're going to go into an epileptic sin seizure and you're going to forget how much you were sure this person would make you happy because there is no person that can love you the way that you need to be loved except a person that has themselves been forgiven much and so they love much. We talked a lot about this in the series, right? In the, in the different parts of that little fantasy series and what I just want to share with you tonight is a true story and it's a radical story. It's almost an offensive story. When you understand what God asked a human to do in order to illustrate his zealousness and his love for guys like me and gals like you and guys like you. And there's a book in your Bible, and the book is called Hosea. And if you got your Bible, turn to the book of Hosea. It'd be awesome. Hosea um, means literally salvation. That's what the name Hosea means. It means it means that, that there is going to be this overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love poured out on you that will turn into the one thing that you desperately want in your insecurity and uncertainty. Informed by your self-knowledge of your imperfection, you just wonder, is there anybody who can save me from the loneliness of my brokenness? And what I want to tell you, I mean, obviously, you guys aren't, aren't, aren't clueless. You, you, you see where this is going. And what I'm just going to tell you is that the radical pursuit that we all really want can only really be found in one place. Now, what God did is he took Hosea. He was a prophet. And, and, and prophets weren't just people that spoke. Prophets were sometimes folks that revealed a, a, an attribute of the characteristic of God that people were um, unfamiliar with or had lost touch with so that they could get their arms around it, often in a very experiential way. God had his prophets do some really crazy stuff. I mean, go read the book of Ezekiel at one point. Ezekiel was a, a prophet that was um, there to tell the people that God wasn't kidding when he said there was going to be a consequence to them kind of putting 
uh, him off and ignoring him. And, and the way that he established that the, 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 the discipline that they were going to be under was real is he asked Ezekiel basically to go through a melodrama, which had him cooking his food over dung, laying on his side in a public square for about a year and a half. And you're kind of like, what? What in the world? What kind of God would ask a guy to do that just to get a message through? And that is a God that really is serious about the message getting through to people. And he was willing to ask guys to do pretty amazing things to get that message through. Now, here's one that is one of the most shocking in all the scripture. Let me just tell you this. The guy's name, Hosea, means salvation. Hosea was um, a prophet to um, the, the, the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel, I wanna give you a little bit of a context of who they were, right? They were people that were in bondage, they were people that were just like everybody else, and God chose to reveal himself uniquely through a relationship that he would pursue with certain humans that would eventually um, make the rest of the world take notice of the unique way that these people were loved. Now, you need to know this. These people happen to be what we call today the Jewish people, and you kind of go, why were the Jewish people chosen? And the answer is just because God chose to use them. He didn't love them more than anybody else. He just said, I'm going to especially use you. And in my love for you that I pour out on you, it's going to make other people go, what is going on with you people? And the Jews were to answer, nothing's going on with us. We're just like you. We're just as rebellious and just as lost and just as desperate and just just as insecure, but we're not trying to figure out how to work toward this God that we don't really know and understand. God has revealed himself to us and shown us how we can know him even though we ourselves are not worthy of being pursued. God has pursued us and rescued us. And we're no longer a slave to the best ideas of men. We're now set free by the revelation of God. And look what he's done for us. He's not our God. He is the God. Come and know him. What's really interesting um, is that you're going to find out that when God rescues people, he never does that through performance, through the law, okay? The law was given to the Jewish people to show them that this God that is pursuing them is a holy God, and you're not a very holy people, which is why you're constantly in trouble, because you've left the God who is kind, left the God who is a loving father, and so when you leave a loving father, you get a hateful one. When you leave the God who is life, you're going to get death. And when you leave the God who is light, you're going to get darkness. And so God's just bringing the light and the love back to the world by, by loving Abraham and his descendants. Now, what's interesting is Moses gave the law, but Moses couldn't lead the people into the place of promise. It was actually another guy. His name was Yeshua, Joshua. Joshua's name has the name Hosea in it, except the first part of it, Jehovah Yeshua, Joshua, the Lord saves. You know what's really interesting? There's another guy who has the name Yeshua. But not in Hebrew. In Greek, his name is Jesus. That is the Greek Yeshua. That's the Greek name for the Lord saves. And you're going to see that ultimately what Joshua was a picture of, the one who can deliver you by grace into the place of promise, is who Jesus was. What Hosea is a picture of Jesus is the one who accomplishes it. But what is the story of Hosea? Let me remind you, because in it you're going to see that there's a fantasy pursuit of you and me that is almost offensive. It's interesting, you know, uh, it won't surprise you that the way we're going to close this message is by singing a song that right now is, is um, I think, helpful to all of our hearts, right, that we've been singing a lot. Just the reckless love of God. And some people go, is that theologically correct that you would sing a song? God doesn't do anything reckless. He's not a God of confusion. Should you sing a song that it's like God is reckless? Look, here's the deal. Here's what you need to know. All right? I think it's a fair question. I mean, it's a good question. I'm glad you care about words, whoever you are asking that. But we're speaking here anthropomorphically, okay? Uh, I didn't say that very well, did I? We're speaking here in a way that is understandable to men. The love that I'm about to describe to you is a love that just seems really unreasonable. And to us, it just seems really, really reckless. It seems overwhelmingly impossible. Man, but if it's true, if it's true, woe to us were flippant about its author. Here's the story of Isaiah, I mean of Hosea. 
Hosea was um, a prophet, as I said, and um, God came to him during a time when the nation of Israel had hardened its heart again and again and again and again and again against the God that had been so gracious to Israel again and again and again and again. And this really bothered God because God wanted Israel to be the nation through which other people would see the kindness and goodness of God. And if the people that knew God best were the most indifferent towards him, God was going to say, look, man, we can't have this keep going on. And so he is going to show Israel how much he loves them and he wants a guy that can preach to them out of a sense of the love of God. And so he tells Hosea this. He says, Hosea, I'm going to have you go love a woman and her name is Gomer. All right? Now listen, that's not even the ugliest part about her. <laughs> right? If there was a tinder back in that day, even then you'd go, I don't care what she looks like. Would you say her name was Gomer? What's interesting, if you look up the word Gomer, okay, if you look up the word Gomer in our dictionary today, it, it, it means today um, only two things in slang. There's a military slang, and the word in military slang for Gomer is stupid. Like if you're a Gomer, you are, you are an incompetent colleague, usually a young trainee. Okay, that's why, by the way, if you guys ever watch TV Land, and I highly recommend that you tune into that every now and then, you'll watch about a guy named Gomer Pyle. You ever seen Gomer Pyle? Right, a couple of you guys, good. So Gomer Pyle, he's called Gomer because he's a, a plebe, a trainee, he just can't get anything right and drives Sergeant Carter mad. Gomer Pyle, an incompetent colleague. In the medical term, a Gomer is just a really troublesome patient. No matter how much you try and care for them, usually an uh, um, an elderly person that just fights you, like, don't stab me. And, you, and like, dude, I want, I'm trying to help you. I don't want to stab you. But a gomer is what medical doctors would call somebody like, who's got the gomer in room 305, right? Go check their blood pressure. You know what you're walking in to that room. It's going to raise your blood pressure when you get in there. And it comes from, this is amazing, how much Bible language has made its way into our culture. It comes from this story. So who is Gomer? Gomer is somebody that God calls this prophet to love. And he tells Hosea from the very beginning, I just want to tell you, she's going to be a harlot. And she's going to give you children, and the children aren't going to be yours, and you're not going to have to have a DNA test to figure it out. This woman's not going to be faithful to you. She's going to break your heart. And I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you what it feels like to have a lover who is unfaithful so that in your brokenness, you can speak to people about how my heart is broken. And Hosea, I want you to love her anyway. I want you to pursue her anyway. Now listen, you might be going, what kind of God would ask somebody to do that? And let me make it really clear. God spends the entire scripture making sure that he is, that you're not gonna have to live Hosea's life. God doesn't want any of us to be yoked to anybody less than somebody who has been loved the way Hosea loves Gomer. Don't go marry a Gomer to show um, the sacrificial love of Christ. Just know this, even if you marry a person who knows the love of God, there's gonna be times you're gonna feel like you're dying to yourself to stay committed to them and keep pursuing them because all of us are broken, none of us are perfect. But God is telling you, Hey, let me just tell you, you want to marry somebody who's already well married to me, somebody who already has been forgiven much so they can love much, who's received grace so they can extend grace. That's your fantasy mate. Watch this story. Here we go. Verse 2, chapter 1. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go and take yourself a wife of harlotry. Let me say again, you never see that command anywhere else in Scripture. Missionary dating is not a good idea. All right, if you might want to go, I'm going to be a modern-day prophet. I'm going to go find the most unwholesome guy or girl I can, and I'm going to train him. <laughs> I would just tell you, you may as well get you a lion cub and raise it and enjoy the lion cub years, because eventually that thing's going to grow up and eat you. But you'll get a lot of attention early on. While you're parading your little puppy around, everybody goes, whoa, you were the cub? Man. But that cub's going to eat you. He tells Hosea, you go marry that lion cub, and you have children of harlotry with her, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, 
And she conceived and bore him a son. Now watch this. And the Lord said to him, name the first son Jezreel. For yet in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now let me just give you a little biblical background right here. He says, I want you to name the first child Jezreel. Let's go down a little bit further. When you get to verse 6, it says, she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, name this daughter Lo-Ruhamah, which doesn't, Jezreel was a place. I'm going to tell you what the place Jezreel was in a second. Uh, Lo-Ruhamah means specifically not given to compassion or no pity. (laughs) How'd you like, what's your name? No pity. What's your mom's name? Gomer. Like, child. Right? A little bit further down, you'll see in verse 9, there's a third child that comes. Uh, Their name, it's a boy, is Lo-Ami. Ami is like amigo, friend, right? Ami is, in Hebrew, means friend. Lo means no. So, no friend. That's just a tough name, right? But watch the name of these kids. God says Jezreel. Now, Jezreel is a place in Israel's history where some of the greatest abominations happen at the height of their rebellion. It'd be like having a Chinaman name their kid Tiananmen Square or a German say, call your kid Auschwitz. No German wants to name their kid Auschwitz because they're just like, man, what we did at Auschwitz, what we're responsible for at Treblinka, we don't, we don't even want to remember that, man. And, and God says, oh, I remember it. I've not forgotten what happened in Jezreel. And so there will be no pity because you are not my people. So the offspring of the unfaithfulness of the God who saves with the one who leaves him is that I see your wicked deeds I will have no pity on you for your wicked deeds. I mean, I've begged you through many, many prophets who told you that I was loving and I was good. But now I'm going to watch this. God is a God who, because he loves Israel and there's no other option, he says, I'm going to let you experience what you're choosing. Now, let me tell you, some of you guys are still in this world. You're kind of creating your Jezreel. You're still doing things that that you're gonna go, I'm not really proud of what I'm doing, but I think I'm getting away with it. Israel thought they got away with their Jezreel. And God said, man, you don't get away with that. There's a scripture that I I, I quote a lot to my friends. In Ecclesiastes chapter eight, verse 11, it says this. It says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of men among them are given fully to do evil. Israel had their Jezreel, and then they had another scene, and they had their Dan, they're Bethel. Let me tell you a little bit what's going on in Israel at the time. Okay, he is the God who saves. God's the God who values people. But what they did is they canonized, okay, um, the nation of Israel. So here's the story. When God called them out of bondage to an oppressor and set them free because he heard their cry and was going to show his power by delivering them and revealing who he was to them, he took Israel out and he said, I'm going to use you to go into Cana, which is a land that we today would primarily know is where modern-day Israel is. It's, it's what's west of the Jordan River, right there up against the Mediterranean Sea. And he basically says, you're going to go in there, and there's some nations there that time is up for them, and there's judgment that's going to come to them. I've been trying to reach them, but they won't listen, and so it's time for judgment to come upon them. And they were supposed to go in and be God's instrument of judgment on the Canaanite people. And the Canaanite people were really um, practicing some pretty awful stuff. But what happened is Israel didn't do what God asked them to do, and so they left some of those people there, and then eventually they go, some of these gals aren't that bad looking, and they started to marry with them and intermarry with them. They adopted some of their culture, and so instead of being this people that were redeemed to live in relationship with this God who has rescued them, they became uh, basically like the rest of the world. And God wasn't their king. They had their own kings. They sought their own way. In the scripture, you'll every now and then run across um, this character called Baal, B-A-A-L. Now, Baal, that's just um, the Canaanite word for Lord. Here's what Baal worship was. Baal worship, um, Baal was the god of the skies. Now, remember, when you don't know who God is, you got to figure out how to relate to God. And so you might create some story, some mythology. The Greeks did it. The Romans adopted most of the Greek mythology. The Jews did make up stories because God wrote himself into their story in history. And you can go back and look. All right? There is no Mount Olympus. There is no Zeus. 
There is no Apollo, okay? Everybody knows those are stories by creative writers. But there is characters that are in your Bible all throughout recorded history. And what God is saying is, in the midst of history, I'm going to show you who I am. I'm gonna reveal myself in the context of your story. You're going to see my story. History is God's story in the context of humankind. And in the story, it says that as God is, is revealing himself, he wants to deliver people from just having to make up who he is. And so that's why God says, this is who I am. I'm the creator God. There isn't, there isn't some Baal out there. There's not a Zeus. But this was Baal worship. Are you ready? Um, Baal worship was a part of what's called the Canaanite fertility worship cults. And what they would do is they would believe Baal, the god of the sky, had his consort or his concubine who was Anat, who was the goddess of the earth. And what they believed was is that they needed the god of the sky and the god of the earth to relate so that they could produce children that then they could eat. And so when it rained, that was Baal copulating. And his semen would fall into the earth and would have relations with Anat and it would bring forth children, crops. And then because they ate Baal and Anat's children, they felt like this is what we have to do. The way we worship Baal is we have temples that are Baal temples and Anat temples and we will have temple prostitutes. And so we need to go and sleep with these prophetesses and these temple prostitutes, and then they will give birth to children, and then we'll take those children, and we will sacrifice them to Baal. And we give them their children. Baal brings his semen the next season, and the earth is repopulated again with his children, and we eat them, and on and on and on we go. That's pretty rough. And God says, ah, that story's not going to roll with me. And he reveals where crops come from. He reveals who he is. He says, we're going to put a stop to this in his grace. Israel adopted that practice. Watch this. Um, he goes on, and he's just going to basically say this in verse 10. I want to read there with you. It says, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. I'm going to, I'm going to populate them. There's going to be a lot of them, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will come about that in the place where it is said of them, you are not my people, it will be said of them, you are the sons of the living God. What he's going to start to do here is anticipate the kindness that will someday come. I'm not going to eradicate you. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. There'll be a national reunion and they will appoint for themselves one leader. There's going to one day be a national leader and they will go up for the land. And it says there's going to be a battle in a Jezreel. And so he says to Hosea in chapter 2, verse 1, so say to your brothers, Ami, my friends. Now remember, this is a guy who has married a woman who is going to give herself away, and he's never really sure that the children are his children. In fact, God says they're not going to be your children because your wife is going to be continually unfaithful to you. But you go to your people, and you tell them, my friends, and to your sisters, pitied ones, those of you that are suffering because you're living like pagans, living apart from God who are not happy and discontent and feel trouble looming over you. He says, you're going to say to them, contend with your mother, contend. In other words, don't be the children of the offspring of a false understanding of reality. Plead with your people to not have that kind of mother. Let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest, he says, if you keep doing this, I'll strip her naked. I'm going to expose your wickedness. Expose her from the day when she was born. And he goes on and describes these things. Verse 5, watch this, chapter 2. For her mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she will say, watch what she says. Gomer says, are you kidding me? Things aren't bad. Why would you, why would you not want to do what I do? I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Gomer is basically saying to Hosea, why would I come back to you and why would you tell them that my choices are bad? I'm out there tripping around with all these guys and these guys are taking me on five-star vacations. They're giving me all kind of money. I'm wearing mink, I'm wearing jewels because I'm giving them what they want. Now here's what's really interesting that God's about to show. God's saying, you know, while Gomer thinks that she's prospering and getting these things because she's um, recklessly offering herself out to the ways of the world, you're going to find out that it's God who's allowing some of that blessing, but he's about to stop it because he wants Gomer to see that's no life at all. I, I just want to insert right here. Look, it is a fact, girls. I'm going to talk to the girls for a second. It's a fact, girls, that you, 
by, by, by giving yourself away. I mean, I would, I would you know, I just kind of made a note to myself here as I was just thinking about this. When you're a, the kind of girl who will go out and you'll share, you know, whatever you have to offer others and you, you give of yourself, you, you show certain things and you share certain things, you're going to get the attention of certain guys. And you're going to look around and go, why do these guys keep going after that girl, right? If you want to get a guy by showing and shopping and sharing your flesh, you're going to get a guy. But I'm going to tell you, beware, because you're going to get buyers who want what you're selling. And if you get a guy who is buying your selling and showing and sharing your flesh, I'm going to tell you something, you're going to lose him for the exact same reason. There's going to one day be a better looking gomer than you. And there's going to be a, a different trophy gomer that he's going to run to. And if you want to get a guy and attract a guy with that, don't be surprised when you lose a guy for that. There's an old country western song that says, you know, it's a, it's a song basically about one woman singing to the other woman who took her husband away and says, hey, if you want, and she's saying, but you don't know, we're just kind of soulmates. We love each other. He deserves a woman that loves him the way that I'm telling him I love him. And the girl over here says, you're right. If, if you want a man who will take a ring off his hand and tell you that forever he'll be true, you're right. He deserves you. You deserve each other. I'm always surprised when people who move into a relationship through infidelity are surprised when that relationship ends in infidelity. I'm always surprised when people who move into a relationship that is defined by two people doing what they think is right and feels good to them and the world encourages them that, of course, go ahead, why not? Why wouldn't you? And God's saying, I wouldn't go into that relationship with those kind of people who do what seems right to them, but in the end it leads to death when that relationship dissolves and, and ends up like it shouldn't. I'm always surprised when people who marry, people who are committed to harlotry are shocked when they have a harlot's relationship. That's why God says, I don't want you to have that kind of relationship. But that's not really the story right here. The story right here is watch God in the person of Hosea. What we're going to do is just jump, and I'm going to come back to the, um, is, uh, you know, a little section right here in, in, in chapter 2. Okay, uh, actually, let's just read it right now. So in verse, in verse 6 of chapter 2, it says, Therefore, behold, I'm going to hedge up her way with thorns. This is God speaking. I'm going to build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths that she used to pursue her lovers. What God's going to say is, Gomer, it's time. I've loved you by pursuing you, but now I'm going to let you get what you want. And I'm going to make it hard for you to find your lovers. She says, she will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. In other words, she won't find any more lovers. She will seek them, but will not find them. They will move on. They'll find another younger, better-looking Gomer. And she will say, okay, I'm going to go back to my first husband then, for it was better for me than now. What God's going to do is make her basically get sick and tired of being sick and tired, so she maybe will return. This is what God says. Watch this in verse 8. For she does not know, Gomer, that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil. Here's what God had Hosea do. Those guys were out there using his wife of harlotry, and they didn't really care about her. But Hosea would go up and say, hey, you know that woman you're sleeping with? You know that girl you're, you're shacking up with? That's my wife. And she doesn't want to come home with me because she thinks she's having a big time with you. Here's some, here's some flax. Here's some wine. Here's some oil. I want you to give her more than she's asking. I want you to shower her with gifts because I love her and I care for her. And the whole while, he would still go to her, and he would say, sweetie, come home. She says, why would I come home? I get everything I want. And she doesn't know it's her God, Hosea, her husband, who's giving that to her. So I'll just tell you this. I mean, some of the pleasure you're experiencing right now, even in your sin, okay, you're using God's gifts in a God-forbidden way, but because you're benefiting from the gift and you're not experiencing the consequences of the forbidding, you kind of think, well, there is no God. There's no consequence to this. Sex feels good. I'm enjoying it. The world tells me it's okay. And yet, deep in your soul, you're like, I don't know if this is really okay. And God's the one providing the pleasure. God created your body for pleasure, but he didn't create your body to have pleasure for a moment and then a big whiplash of guilt big whiplash of insecurity. And eventually, that party's going to be over. Now watch. Hosea chapter 3. Some people say that this is probably the most powerful chapter in your entire Bible. Because you need to know something. 
Gomer isn't just this woman we should look at and go, what is wrong with her? Gomer is me. Gomer is us. The Lord said to Hosea, go again. I want you to love a woman who is loved by her husband and yet is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. I'll just tell you what raisin cakes were. Raisin cakes were cakes made with a bunch of little seeds in them, and they believed that it was an aphrodisiac. Okay, it was just a, a fable, but they believed that because in raisin cakes there'd be lots of little seeds when you ate it, it made your seed more um, virile. And so you would eat raisin cakes before you went to worship Baal. That's the reference here. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver. If you went back and read your Bible, you would see that a slave was bought for 21 shekels. By the way, just insert this in there because I always am careful with an audience that maybe hasn't really um, been around the Bible for a long time. Yeah, well, what's that thing about the Bible and slavery? In the Bible, there was really only three reasons for slavery, and none of them were ever what you and I think of when we think of slavery. The Bible never, ever, ever endorsed that kind of slavery. People who tortured the text did. In the Old Testament, uh, slaves were basically um, nations that had been conquered by another nation that would go to war, as men always will do apart from God, and they will abuse one another, and they will take them. And then you will be a part of a, a servant nation to another nation, or you would live in your nation irresponsibly and you'd be in what's called debtor's slavery. Or you could sometimes find somebody you love so much, you go, I'm just gonna choose to give myself to you and I'll be a bond servant. I choose to be your slave just because I love you so much. But never in the scripture, it was always punishable by death if you took a man and kidnapped him and made him your slave. All right, there's this little thing we do called Real Truth Real Quick. There's a whole episode on that in six minutes called What's a Biblical Response to People Who Say That the Bible Supports Slavery? And I walk you through that. The Kunta Kinte, the Old South slave trade has forever been an offense to God. And it's an embarrassment to the church that it ever endorsed it. Praise God that true Christians are the ones that eradicated it. But if you bought a slave, you bought it for 21, God just kind of wrote in, it's 30 shekels of silver. Now look it, you could buy a gourd slave, a slave that had been gored by an ox that we're not sure it's gonna live, that would go over 15 shekels of silver, okay? So if, if the way that it worked, when one nation would maraud another nation and they would sell those people, it would be 30 shekels, but if there was one that was kind of killed in war, you're not sure you're gonna make it, it'd be worth 15 shekels. And what they're saying is, Gomer, you're a gourd slave. We're not even sure what you're worth, but that's what he bought her for. And basically a homer and a half of barley, which is animal food. And so I said to her, you shall stay with me though for many days, and you shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be towards you. And then he says in verse four, for the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. But he says afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. And what he's basically gonna say is, and I'll be there. In the way that Hosea kept pursuing Gomer, I'm gonna keep pursuing you. Now here's the deal. There are some people who die their life, their whole life, just always rebelling against God and they never turn their hearts back home. The discipline is never severe enough that they get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And the scripture is very honest about who those people are. It says that the father loves and disciplines, whom the father loves, he disciplines, he reproves his children. And if you never really go through that where you never get really sick and tired, never experience enough of the world's um, sting of the world because you love the world and the love of the Father isn't in you. It says in this, in the scriptures, it says it's appointed for man to die once and after this comes judgment. If there's never a time in your life when you get sick and tired of being a gomer and you never see the love of God and return back away from the, the, the death of your sin and the emptiness of your soul's pursuit and never find your peace with God, then there's gonna be a time he'll just give you what you want forever. But here's the thing. When you die and you leave God, you're not gonna go on to one great party with all your other gomer friends. Because remember, friends are a gift from God. God gives you friends and grace in this life. He gives you sex in this life for the righteous and the unrighteous to enjoy. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. But if you don't want anything to do with God, there's gonna be a day when he's gonna grant you your request. You don't want the God who is salvation, then he'll give you a land where there is no salvation, there is no sex, there is no music, there is no friendship, there is no laughter, there is no death. Because even death and rest, would, even death would be a form of rest. All those things are a gift. Like even this, I'll just tell you this. When man first sinned and um, left God, God immediately put an angel to guard the tree of life. 
so that Adam and Eve, in their sin, couldn't go and eat of the tree of life. Why? Because God in his grace goes, I don't want you to live in sin forever. I'm going to drive you out of the garden of rest. I'm going to set you out into the world of darkness and cold and isolation and hiding, and I'm going to woo you back to the God that you've left. But I'm going to make sure you don't live forever right now, Adam and Eve. I'm going to rescue you from your sin. See, because Hosea, the prophet, is just a tainted, shadowy picture of the way God pursues you and me. Let me just close with this. Because this is a never-ending love. I, I want to read you two things. One is just a, 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 um, an old theologian's description of Hosea. So let me just read this to you. Who can explain the sanity of this kind of love? This love of God, this infinite love, this sovereign love, love apart from reason. Because everybody would have looked at Hosea and go, Hosea, why are you, why are you pursuing a gomer? Everybody knows she's a harlot. He says, because I'm going to redeem her. She's like a gourd slave. I'm going to redeem her. And when I redeem her, I'm going to love her. The guy says this, love exists for its own reasons. Love is not according to logic. Love is according to love. Thus it was with Hosea, because he was showing you that God is love. The pursuing love of God is the greatest wonder of the spiritual universe. We leave God in the heat of our own self-desire. We run from his will because we want so much to have our own way. We get to a crossroads. We look back in pride thinking that we've um, outdistanced him. Just as we are about to congratulate ourselves on our achievement of self-enthronement, we feel a touch on our arm and a turn in that direction to find him there, still glorying in our sin. He says, my child, I love you. When I saw you running away from me all, and all that is good, I pursued you through a shortcut that love knows well. I awaited you here at these crossroads. We have torn ourselves, though, from free from the grasp, and we rush off again through the deepest woods and farthest swamp. As we look back again, we are sure this time that we succeeded from escaping God and any remembrance of him. But once more, the touch of love is on our other sleeve, and when we turn quickly, we find that he is there, pleading with eyes of love and showing himself once more to be the tender and faithful one, loving to the end. He'll always say, my child, my name and nature are love. And I must act according to that which I am. So it is that I pursued you to tell you that when you are tired of your running and your wandering, I will be there to draw you to myself once more. When we see this love at work through the heart of Hosea, we may wonder if God is really like that. Is there somebody that loves me that way? Because I know what it's like, right? God, if you're there and you're that holy, could you ever love me? Do you know what I've done? He knows exactly what you've done. And he loves you. And all you got to do is just believe that that love exists in an overwhelming, never-ending, reckless, unspeakably glorious way. A guy named Eugene Peterson just died. He, he's kind of most famous for writing this Bible called The Message, which is just a paraphrase. It's Peterson in his own words paraphrasing the Scripture. He was just buried, and when he was buried... His son listened to everybody speak about him, and Peterson wrote tons of books. And he wrote the book, The Message, and he stood up and he said this. He goes, it doesn't make any sense to me that you guys talk about all his books and all his, all his different messages. He said, let me just tell you something. My dad had one message, and one message only. And he whispered it in my heart every night as a child. He would come into my room, and frankly, for the entire 50 years that I've been alive, he kept saying it to me. But I remember as a child, my dad would walk in my room every night, and he would speak over me. And this was his message. And by the way, I'm just going to tell you something. This is the message. This is not a rule book. The Bible is not a rule book. It's not a, a list of moral laws that you have to follow to be loved. It's a reminder, Gomer, that living the way you're living, even though you think it's working... It's not working because of what you're doing. It's working because God in his grace has not let you come to an end of yourself and he's keeping you alive and he's slow towards you, not because he's not able to bring judgment, because he's patient towards you, wishing that you wouldn't perish but come to eternal life. This is a story from in the beginning of man being created to man saying, I don't think I need you, God. I'm gonna live my own way, God, to God pursuing us in a reckless way and then bringing us back. How reckless, this reckless, and I'm gonna tell you what this book says. When we see the love of God in Hosea, we see this. That everything in his word and his experience shows us that God is love. 
that he will give man the trees of the forest that he runs through and the iron in the ground that he uses to kill each other. He will give to man the brains to make an ax from that iron to cut down a tree and fashion into a cross. He will give man the ability to make a hammer and nails. And when man has the cross and the hammer and the nails, the Lord will allow man to take hold of him, Yeshua, the God who saves, and take hold of him and bring him to that cross. He will stretch out his hands upon it. He will allow man to nail him to that cross. And in doing so, will take the sins of man upon himself and make it possible for those who have despised and rejected him to come to him through that cross and know the joys of sins removed because the wrath of God has been satisfied in the perfect sacrifice only God himself can provide. What kind of God does that? The kind of God that Peterson used to stand over his son Every night, and he would say this to him, God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. And he is relentless. I pray as you move into Thanksgiving that you and me, other gomers, who have been wooed back by the kindness of God like a gourd slave redeemed, not just on Thanksgiving, but every day. I go, God, you love me. I can't believe you love me. You're on my side. But you're coming after me. And you're relentless. Father, I pray for my friends that they would know this fantasy pursuit isn't a fantasy. It's the truth. It's the truth that can pull us out of our sick and tiredness of being sick and tired. This woods that we're running through, you fashioned a cross out of that wood. You're not mad at us. You're just sad for us. Lord, I just thank you that you bring pain into our lives and emptiness and insecurity and loneliness and all these things that are just not to exist in the human psyche and the human condition, but you let us have it because that's what we get when we leave you. You're not punishing us with these things. You're letting us taste them so we get sick and tired and return to the God who is gracious. And so, Lord, help us to be people who accept that grace and to not tell you that we're unlovable, but to accept the love that is unspeakable. Would you allow us to believe that you love us, that you're on our side, that you're coming after us, you came after us through Yeshua, the one who saves.